The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In order to approve a search of the home of a former president, when we're talking about government documents, they have to be of such a sensitive nature to the intelligence community that recovery is paramount. There has to have been evidence before Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco that the former president was not being candid about having fully complied with his obligation to return all such documents. It's that that I think would lead to being willing to take such a strong step. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 10th, 2022. The FBI on Monday conducted a surprise search of Donald Trump's home and resort at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. The investigation appeared to involve the retention of classified information by the former president after he left the White House. There's not a whole lot of information, but Trump did confirm the search, and we gathered in the virtual jungle studio before a live audience on Twitter spaces to go through it all. Joining me were Alan Rosenstein and Quinta Jurassic, both senior editors at Lawfare, and Andrew Weissman, a former senior prosecutor for Bob Mueller. We talked about what we know and what we don't know, what sort of investigation this might be and where it may be going, and whether this has anything to do with January 6th. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 10th, unpacking the FBI's search at Mar-a-Lago. Andrew, get us started. What do we actually know? What we actually know is that the Department of Justice uh, with the FBI presented evidence to a federal judge or magistrate judge that established probable cause to do a search of Mar-a-Lago, which means there was probable cause of at least one crime and probable cause that evidence of that crime would be located in that location. Um, that's that's for sure. Um, I think the other thing that we know is that uh, Merrick Garland and or Lisa Monaco had to have gotten a compelling answer to the question that they must have asked, which is why do we need to proceed by a search warrant and not by a subpoena? 
because the government can obtain documents in either way. Um, a subpoena is far less draconian. You don't have to make a so showing of probable cause. And the recipient of the subpoena simply gathers the documents and produces them. Um, and that's done uh, day in and day out at the Department of Justice with large corporations and people who you trust will comply with the subpoena. And so I think there had to have been a very compelling answer given to them as to why they could not trust that the former president would comply with the subpoena and they needed to proceed by way of search warrant. All right. So, Quinta, what do we know about the investigation that produced this uh, this search warrant? It uh when I saw the Trump statement yesterday, I assumed we were dealing with the January 6th investigation. It turns out we seem not to be. Uh, what is this other investigation and uh, what do we know about it? So the New York Times reported just now uh, that this does not seem to be uh, related to the January 6th investigation, that it is, according to multiple sources, a separate investigation. What we know about this is almost entirely from a string of reporting from the Washington Post that goes back to uh, February of this year, 2022. Um, so the Post reported in February that the National Archives had taken 15 boxes of documents from Mar-a-Lago uh, that had themselves been taken from the White House to Mar-a-Lago after Trump left office. Um, according to uh, Archivist United, of the United States, David Ferriero, who uh, recently reported in that role, uh, he told the Post that he essentially encountered these missing documents when he was told by uh, some folks in the White House that there were boxes uh, that should be going to the archives, um, and yet those never showed up. Um, and that he, he remembered watching the Trumps leave the White House, getting off the helicopter and seeing someone carrying a white banker's box and saying to myself, and I'm quoting here, what the hell is in that box? And so by Ferriero's account, that's kind of what began this, this long back and forth uh, with a pretty uncooperative Trump uh, camp of trying to get these documents back. Um, so there are potential, you know, there is potential criminal liability under federal records law for, for mishandling these records. Uh, but I think what's important to keep in mind is that the Post pretty quickly then reported that those boxes in Mar-a-Lago contained classified documents, including documents that were marked as top secret um, and were marked to even further restrict access within an even smaller group of approved officials. So quite sensitive materials that were clearly marked as such. Um, and so that then raises the question of a potential criminal liability under statutes that regulate the handling of classified information. Uh, again, according to the Post, the archives uh, then asked the Justice Department to begin investigating. Uh, the House Oversight and Government Affairs Committee also began investigating. Um, so all this is in uh, February, March. Then by April, uh, both the Post and the Times reported that the Justice Department was investigating. And by May, both those papers reported that prosecutors had issued a grand jury subpoena to obtain some documents from the archives and were reaching out to former Trump White House aides to conduct interviews. That's kind of the last, as far as I can tell, that we heard about this particular sort of investigative track um, until obviously yesterday. <laughs> so uh, presumably things have picked up a great deal between May and now. 
All right, Alan, I want to throw out a provocation here, which is that there is no way a normal investigation of ret improper retention of government uh, information or even mishandling of classified information absent some major aggravating factor. Uh, and I can think of a few possibilities off the top of my head, but uh, uh, absent some major aggravating factor, there is no way this type of investigation produces an executed search warrant against a former president, or more, more generally, doesn't tend to produce an executed search warrant at all. To go back to Andrew's initial point, maybe a grand jury subpoena, maybe, but these matters tend not to be resolved criminally at all. And so my question to you, which is a totally unfair question is, what isn't in this story? What's there's something missing here? I, I think that's I think that's right. Um, you know, let me say a couple of things before I answer your hypothetical unanswerable question. Um, as a legal matter, and it's important to, to constantly thinking about the legal and prudential aspects of investigations separately, though they are of course related. As a legal matter, if a law was violated. Uh, and the law enforcement officer can establish probable cause to the magistrate, the law enforcement officer can get their search warrant. Um, and so just because we might think of the uh, statute at issue as not particularly serious, or even because if there was a, a precedent or a practice of not taking that statute uh, particularly seriously as a criminal matter and dealing with it as an administrative law matter, um, there's no, I think, question that at any point, law enforcement could decide that, nevertheless, they want to elevate this to a criminal uh, criminal matter. Um, so, you know, from a legal perspective, um, you know, I, I think that assuming that the there was probable cause and there was a sufficient warrant application, there's no reason to think that there wasn't, um, that nothing untoward is going on here. You are correct, though, that as a prudential matter, for a number of reasons, part of it is the precedent as a general matter with respect to these sorts of cases. Part of it is just the fact that a criminal investigation in a particular, the execution of a search warrant at the residence of a former president is literally unprecedented in the sense of it has never happened in American history and is giving rise to, um, I think, unjustified but very predictable blowback and fury from Trump's base and Trump's political allies in Washington, D.C., um, that's you know an obvious prudential reason uh, not to take this step lightly. And finally, um, not to turn this all into a but her emails uh, issue. Um, the fact that when um, <clears throat> the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails was ongoing, uh, that was concluded um, with uh, uh, then Director uh, of the FBI Jim Comey saying, you know, we think bad stuff happened, but we don't think any reasonable prosecutor would. Uh, prosecute this case. All of those things, I think, support your point, Ben, that uh, this cannot simply be a matter of Trump bringing home classified information, though, again, that would be a bad thing. Um, so it does seem that there's one of two possible things going on, uh, but I'd be very curious to hear from other folks, especially uh, Andrew, on, on what his uh, instincts and intuitions might be. One possibility is that there are some serious aggravating factors uh, going on. Um, the fact that an ordinary um, mishandling of records or even mishandling of classified information, which is not that infrequent, frankly. Um, the fact that an ordinary such issue uh, would not be handled criminally doesn't mean that an extraordinary issue 
where there was a huge amount of information or that information uh, was taken for blackmail purposes or to sell to a foreign government or some other crazy aggravating factor that maybe we can't even think of. Under those conditions, you might imagine this uh, understandably rising to the level of a criminal matter. Um, the other possibility, and here's where it gets really speculative, is sure, this warrant in particular might not be about any of the January 6th related issues. But obviously, all of these investigations are happening at the same time. And so if there's a way in which they connect, um, even though the news reports suggest that they're not connecting, but again, it's very early, um, that might be another reason. Um, but you are ultimately right, Ben. There is clearly a bunch we don't know. And the most important thing we don't know is why are they taking this extreme step? Um, since obviously they must have something beyond simple run-of-the-mill mishandling of documents. All right. So, Andrew, you were uh, a famously aggressive prosecutor, uh, feared in the defense bar as the guy you really don't want your client to come up against. Merrick Garland is a norms guy. He's uh, a, a, a also a very serious prosecutor in his past, but, you know, he's famously really keen to reestablish norms. So I'm curious, uh, first of all, would you ever contemplate executing a search warrant against a former president at his home for uh, merely ret improper retention or mishandling of classified material or would you want to see more before you even ran that up the flagpole? And secondly, how do you assess how this would have been evaluated within the Justice Department if there were not more to it than that? So I agree with your uh, question um, where you were saying there's has to be, there has to be a plus factor that we don't know about. Um, in spite of my reputation, when I was the head of the fraud section, I routinely did not approve search warrants when I thought you could get information by subpoena, um, since there was no reason to take that kind of um, that kind of step, and that could be counterproductive. I think here, if, you know, my speculation is the plus factor and the thing that could lead a Lisa Monaco and a Merrick Garland to think that actions had to be taken and taken quickly um, is that although there had been assurances that everything that was classified had been produced, they had evidence and had to been strong evidence that that was not so. And the other plus is that the information was of such singular importance in terms of national security, a compartmentalized program, that this information had to be obtained and gotten back into the possession of the government. I could see the issue of criminal prosecution being very, very secondary to that primary interest um, of the national security concern of needing to obtain the documents. What would fall into that category other than like the nuclear football? Oh, I think there are many things. It's somewhat, um, it's very difficult to talk about, but um, there were a number of, there are a number of things that are very sensitive. So it just generically, 
Um, there are issues about um, who, are the, who are informants, who are sources and assets, um, what kind of operations are happening overseas, what, what foreign countries are cooperating and how they are cooperating. Because as you know, a lot of foreign countries will cooperate, but want assurances that they will not get outed um, for doing so. Um, and various covert operations that have taken place and are taking place are all kinds of things that I think would lead um, the intelligence community uh, with the support of Merrick Garland and Lisa Monica to think that these are documents that need to be obtained. And I could see a very secondary issue being the question of uh, criminal prosecution, um, and you know, which may, may come out of this, but not being the main driver for why you would take this step. I think there's another possibility that a different former federal prosecutor raised with me, which is, hey, this is the, the thing you have probable cause on. And boy, if stuff is in plain sight, when plain view, when you go in uh, and it bears on other stuff, that's fair game. Um, my inclination is that that would be a very unmerit Garland thing to do. But I'm I'm curious what you think the likelihood of uh, of this being a way into Mar-a-Lago uh, that you have probable cause for, and then maybe you get other cool stuff once you're there. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'm qualified to tell you what is or isn't something that Merrick Garland would do, but um, it does strike me that if, if this is a step that the Justice Department wants to take, um, I would imagine that they will have battle-tested it in all kinds of different ways. And so there's certainly the possibility that, as you say, the, the um, uh, archive material um, is sort of the, the issue that is easiest to get the warrants for. But it just strikes me that if there was ever a circumstance for doing it by the book, uh, that is probably this circumstance. And so I suppose it could be the case, but it, it strikes me as very unlikely. What do you think, Alan? Is there any chance that this is uh, what the civil libertarians call a backdoor search? I think ultimately, no. Look, it is possible that this is so overdetermined and they have so much probable cause for so many search warrants um, that uh, ultimately because they have to do a very rigorous search of Mar-a-Lago for this search warrant, they're going to find evidence that ends up being useful for other investigations. But they've probably thought about that and have made sure that they already either have search warrants for those, or at least they've already developed predication for those. Um, again, it's this is where it's really important to keep coming back to the contrast between the legal and prudential cases for all of these steps. Um, you are allowed, right? And under Supreme Court precedent, it's almost impossible to challenge uh, pretextual searches. Um, you are allowed uh, as a law enforcement um, official to do a search for one reason, because you foreseeably expect to get um, evidence on another crime um, that you might not have predication for. It, you know, it's not the best thing. Um, and I think civil libertarians obviously have uh, legitimate concerns over that, but that is in general legal. But the point here again is, and I, I assume, and again, Ben, we all defer to you as the the kind of 
uh, Mayor Garland Oracle, um, it seems just very, very unlikely uh, that in a case of this magnitude, where the both the political and legal stakes are just almost incalculably high, that, that DOJ would be using that sort of um, strategery. Uh, 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 and so I, I suspect that, um, you know, the reason that they were there, the reason that the, the investigators were there for hours and hours is because Mar-a-Lago is very big. The president took home a bunch of documents and you have to go through them. Um, and, you know, if additional information uh, uh, is is discovered, um, it'll be it'll be discovered. But I'm sure they're busy working on predication for all the other investigations that they are uh, currently conducting. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think it's uh, uh, what the most likely explanation here is the extreme aggravating factor explanation or the uh, explanation that uh, there is some, it's actually not a story of, of a criminal investigation at all, but the need to recover material uh, and the need to have confidence that you recovered material. I don't think this is a likely to be a stalking horse for the January 6th investigation, partly because I, I find it hard to imagine that if the Justice Department wanted to proceed uh, uh, on in the January 6th investigation, they couldn't generate probable cause in that area, given just what we already know that's public. And so I, my, my sense is quite apart from the propriety of it, it, it would be needlessly sort of too clever by half. So, uh, Alan, I am curious uh, what we can say uh, based purely on the process here. We have a, uh, uh, a, uh, an executed search warrant, which means that the FBI convinced the, uh, a federal judge that or a federal magistrate that there was probable cause of a crime. Is there are there any tea leaves we can read from how about how this operated within the Justice Department? Uh, I think a lot of people are assuming it's something that Merrick Garland must have personally signed off on. Do you agree with that? We don't know uh, how the process worked internally. I'm, um, you know, what we can say is how a normal search warrant process works, which is fairly simple. Uh, a law enforcement uh, officer, in this case, an FBI agent, um, would go to uh, the local uh, U.S. attorney's office and in you know, cl- close coordination with a you know, AUSA, with an assistant U.S. attorney, uh, would prepare a uh, warrant application, which would include, in this case, a no doubt very, very lengthy and very, very detailed uh, affidavit that would lay out all the information known to the law enforcement officer uh, establishing probable cause that a crime had been committed uh, and that evidence of a crime uh, was in a particular place, uh, in this case, Mar-a-Lago. Um, that law enforcement officer would then take that affidavit and the warrant application to the local uh, magistrate judge. The magistrate judge would review that uh, affidavit. Uh, the officer would swear to it. Uh, and if the magistrate judge was satisfied that there was probable cause um, and that the warrant application was sufficiently particular uh, and stated the things they needed to state, would likely sign off on it. Uh, now, in many cases, there's a back and forth between the magistrate judge and the law enforcement agent and, and uh, the um, AUSA. 
Um, and so there can be rounds of that. It would not surprise me if there were certain rounds of that here, just again, given the immense gravity of what's going on and likely the immense detail and length uh, of the uh, warrant uh, application and affidavit. But of course, because there was a search warrant, at some point everyone was satisfied. And then you go and you execute the search warrant. Uh, that's how it generally happens. Um, different offices work differently. Uh, this is in Palm Beach. So this would have been handled by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida, which is jurisdiction over Miami and the neighboring uh, counties. It would also have been handled by uh, the Miami FBI field office, and the magistrate judge would have been in the Southern District of Florida. Um, I don't know how the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Florida works. Presumably the supervisor was involved, but I have to assume in this case, the actual U.S. attorney was closely monitoring this. Um, and I have to assume that DOJ was closely monitoring this up to and including senior leadership like FBI Director Chris Wray, uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, and Attorney General Merrick Garland. They don't need to. It's not a requirement. Um, but again, just as a prudential matter, it is hard to imagine um, anything like this going on without the the, the top, top leadership being aware and not just being honestly being aware, but of reviewing and approving, which frankly is, I think, exactly how we would want it uh, uh, to be. You know, the only other process point that I would note, and I think there's, you know, we're still getting a little bit of reporting out of this, but it appears that the White House uh, was not informed uh, before the search occurred, or if they were informed, it was right before, uh, but certainly they were not part of this process. They were not asked for permission to execute this search, this search warrant. That is standard procedure. It's been standard procedure for decades. Um, you know, I, I think there are interesting questions, normative questions about what the White House or what the president's involvement should be in um, these sorts of incredibly high profile matters, national, you know, law enforcement matters of national concern. But that's a separate question. Um, I do think it is certainly a recognized standard procedure that the FBI and DOJ do, does not ask the White House uh, permission. Uh, before doing this sort of thing. Um, so, you know, ultimately it doesn't surprise me, again, given what we know about Merrick Garland and what we know about the people around him, that this was done in a very by the book uh, way. All right. Um, so uh, Quinta Allen refers to a, um, to the decision uh, or the apparent decision not to give the White House a heads up on this. A lot of people are raising their eyes skeptically at this. Uh, do you believe it? It's certainly consistent um, with the material that we've seen coming out of the White House and, and from DOJ in the past. So uh, I believe in the summer or spring of 2021, uh, Garland issued a memo about White House DOJ contacts. The, the gist of it is essentially that uh, the Justice Department is not going to have direct communications with the White House about ongoing investigations and cases, except in uh, truly exceptional circumstances. Um, and the, the White House, uh, White House counsel Dana Remus, who since departed, also issued a policy memo essentially saying, you know, from, from the White House end. Um, that we are not going to have those communications. So it's definitely true that, you know, there are sort of loopholes there. It is, it does leave the space to say in exceptional circumstances, uh, we may have these conversations. Uh, but given those memos, given uh, the statements that both President Biden and Attorney General Garland have made uh 
Biden during the campaign, as well as while he was president and, and Garland, I believe, during his confirmation hearings and after. Um, they've both really emphasized the importance of keeping that kind of firewall between the White House and DOJ on criminal cases wherever possible. Um, so I think it's, you know, completely consistent uh, uh, that uh, they would not have had that communication. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, 
doxing, and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So what do you think, Andrew? We're speculating that... Uh, Garland probably knew very specifically that Lisa Monaco uh, was in on this and the White House was not. Is, is, that, uh, is that plausible from your point of view? Completely. Um, completely plausible that this would be done uh, separate and apart from the White House um, for the sake of uh, appearances and also need to know. Um, it's it's not a political decision. It's a prosecutorial decision. If I had to guess, I, I think this probably was more of a recovery operation than an operation thinking about ultimate prosecutions. That, that still could happen, but I, I strongly suspect that that would lead people to do this was a recovery operation and that Merrick Garland, in consultation with the intelligence community, um, would have made the decision to recover documents that were highly sensitive. And why do you think that, I mean, I, th- I find the recovery operation a very plausible theory, and I'm wondering if your your rationale for it is the, is the same as, as mine. Why do you think that's the most likely explanation here? I think it's because in order to approve a search of the home of a former president, when we're talking about documents that, you know, are, are government documents, they can't just be calendar entries and dinner menus and things of that nature. They're, they have to be of such a sensitive nature to the intelligence community that recovery is paramount especially if you couple that with the fact that there has to have been evidence before Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco that the former president was not being candid about having fully complied with his obligation to return all such documents. And I think it's it's that that I think would lead to being willing to take such a strong step. So w- one reason that I'm inclined to agree with you is contained in the statement, the much uh, uh, derided statement that Jim Comey made in closing the Hillary Clinton email 
uh, case. He, uh, as part of this speech, uh, he, uh, which is mostly remembered for his criticisms of her conduct, he also explained why, in his judgment, no reasonable prosecutor would bring such a case. Uh, and in the course of doing so, he said the following, in looking back at our investigations into mishandling or removal of classified information, we cannot find a case, that is a case that was actually prosecuted, that would support bringing criminal charges on these facts. All the cases prosecuted involved some combination of clearly intentional and willful mishandling of classified information or vast quantities of material exposed in such a way as to support an inference of intentional misconduct or indications of disloyalty to the United States or efforts to obstruct justice. And so you look at that and you say, well, is it, are we likely dealing with something uh, uh, that is extreme in one of those ways or by contrast, is it possible just that they need to satisfy themselves that they've actually recovered what they've uh, lost? And it seems to me the latter is uh, at least plausibly a more uh, likely explanation than the former. I'm curious, Andrew, though, do you think this has nothing to do whatsoever with the 1-6 investigation? Or should we understand it as you know, kind of Trump was on a crime spree in the last, you know, few couple few months of the of the uh, of his presidency. Part of that involved, you know, trying to overturn the election. Part of it involved making off with a whole lot of TSSCI material. So, you know, I don't think we know the answer to that, but it is. Um, one thing it's useful to remember is even if they went to do the search to recover certain documents, um, the plain view doctrine applies, meaning that if they do see information there that relates to other criminality, uh, for instance, January 6th uh, criminality, um, they're entitled to uh, to look at that or to, if necessary, to obtain a, an expanded search warrant. Um, so, you know, it could be something that, that went, they went in entirely in good faith, just looking for, uh, subject A, but as often happens when you're dealing with somebody who may have committed multiple offenses that you find evidence of crimes B, C, and D while you're in there. And I, I want to pose you the same question on that point that I posed to Quinta and Alan earlier. Is it? Uh, is it possible and would it be improper uh, to use the probable cause you have in this area to kind of backdoor a search on the other stuff using kind of, well, we're going in there to recover the classified material, but hi, if we happen to see some cool 1-6 stuff, that's fair game. How aggressive can you be on something like that without, you know, violating the rules? Well, um, you know, the Supreme Court has allowed something called pretext stops and pretext searches, meaning as long as you stay within the 
limits of the law. The fact that your motive may be to find other information is not a ground to suppress. But that's that's the constitutional standard. I think it is it is inconceivable um, uh, that Merrick Garland or Lisa Monaco approved that uh, kind of procedure here. I, I just find that I know Lisa better than I know Merrick, and I think that's just not a possibility in my view. All right. So I'm uh, all of this raises before we go to audience questions a, uh, a a question about what happens going forward. Normally, I think if you had a big action like this in a very politically sensitive setting, the temptation to move quickly after it uh, by way of relieving pressure on yourself uh, would be pretty substantial. That is, you know, the reaction from Republicans today and yesterday is super fierce. And if you were the team, uh, you would want to get something down in an indictment pretty quickly to justify what you've done. On the other hand, uh, that's not the way the Justice Department is supposed to work. And moreover, uh, the uh, uh, um, if the goal here was really to recover material, uh, it might not shape up that way that easily. So I'm curious what you think the follow-up is. Does this now go dark like the Rudy Giuliani investigation did after his uh, after the search warrant? in that case, or should we expect relatively quick action? So um, I, I um, take Merrick Garland at his word when he recently uh, spoke about the importance of this investigation, but and I think he probably feels a personal sense of needing to do this um, uh, quickly, but correctly. I, I don't think that we should be expecting imminent action. Um, that to me, the easiest thing that could come out of this is a potential sort of false statement, um, uh, 641 type charge. There was things that are very clear, but it seems also, um, and those are the kinds of things that we saw with respect to, for instance, General Petraeus. Um, uh, but it seems also that and, and just to be to be uh, for those who are not uh, former federal prosecutors or defense lawyers, uh, uh, give us a little 641 primer. Sure. 641 is theft of government property, um, and it doesn't require that the government property is classified or not classified. It does require that the government be able to estimate that there's a value to the to the um, the documents that were taken. So it's a very a sort of clean, simple statute. A number of the other statutes that people have been talking about in the last, uh, you know, 20 hours, um, I think have a lot of gray in them. And as a friend of mine used to say, who was in the Solicitor General's office, gray is not for criminal cases, and it certainly isn't for a criminal case of a former president, um, meaning that you're looking for statutes that are, are very clear and very direct where there isn't a lot of ambiguity. Um, and a false statement charge could come up because 
presumably the reason that Merrick Garland proceeded by way of search warrant is because they had information that there still was extant in Mar-a-Lago information that they had been told had been turned over um, back to the government. Um, and if they find that in Mar-a-Lago, particularly if it's um, particularly sensitive information that could lead to a potential false statement charge. Having said that, um, since I'm a lawyer and I, you know, you can you sort of understand both sides of an issue, the idea of bringing a simple false statements charge against a former president, you know, I don't think is something that is going to be particularly appealing to the Justice Department in, unless they also develop other proof. Yeah, I, I can see a false statements being the last of four charges, but I cannot see a standalone false statements case uh, against, uh, you know, the, the first charge against a former president's got to be something super impressive. So, Alan, you made an interesting point that you think that this uh, execution of a search warrant should dispel any question about whether Merrick Garland has it in him to issue an indictment against Trump. Uh, obviously, there's the question of whether the evidence will support it. Where does the investigation go? But talk us through that point. Why do you think that? Sure. I don't want to obviously caveat this by saying that I am not a Merrick Garland expert and I have no huge interest in psychoanalyzing him. Uh, but here we are. Um, my reason for thinking this is that um, the, as you put it, furious or fierce response from Trump and in particular from Trump's base and most importantly from Trump's political allies and, and not just political allies, but for a lot of Republicans, even those who have been a little Trump skeptical uh, on the Hill, um, <clears throat> that this response was completely predictable. Um, it's not justified, uh, but it is completely predictable. And the reason that's important is because if you're Merrick Garland or Lisa Monaco or Christopher Ray, you know that this is going to happen. You know that this act of executing a search warrant is in the eyes of many Americans and many GOP lawmakers going to put a huge bullseye on the back of DOJ and FBI. Again, it's not a justified bullseye, but it is one that exists. And so if what has been dissuading you potentially from in fully investigating and prosecuting the former president is concerns over the um, institutional credibility and reputation of DOJ and FBI, and also, understandably, your own, um, let's say, career, because if the GOP, as it is likely to do, takes control over the House in November, uh, they're going to hold endless, I mean, they're going to make Benghazi look like a, a you know, high tea at the Ritz, right? They're going to hold your feet to the fire for years and years and years over this. Um, <clears throat> and so because of that, uh, if you've already executed a search warrant, then the additional political cost, and I hear I use political broadly, of then actually indicting the person is not that high, right? You've already crossed the Rubicon, so to speak. Um, and so <clears throat> to me, the willingness to take this action um, and to incur this political and reputational cost signals that you're willing to do so. And if you're willing to do that, then you're probably willing to go all the way because all the way isn't that much worse in terms of political cost than what you've already uh, uh, accepted. Um, so again, 
the important caveat, Ben, that you raised earlier is important, which is at the end of the day, plenty of search warrants and plenty of executions of search warrants don't end up in indictments because search warrants don't always show what you thought they would show because probable cause is just probable and it's not certainty. Um, <clears throat> um, and ultimately what DOJ and Merrick Garland, I'm sure, is going to be driven by is the facts and the law and all of that. Um, but I, I really do think that at this point, the questions that many people had um, totally justifiably about Garland's appetite to fully seeing this thing through, I think they've been basically put to rest. All right. So I want to um, uh, ask, go back to this question of this this kind of deranged reaction uh, in a moment. But before we do, there I, there's a technical question, Andrew, that I want to put to you, which is that this... Uh, there has been some reporting that there was a taint team uh, on site when when they did this search. The reporting's a bit sketchy, um, but um, what is a taint team, and is it significant that one was there, or was, is that just what you would have expected? It's not significant that it was there. It would have been significant if it wasn't there. A taint team uh, is there when there is a concern about privilege, whether it's the attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. And what it does is a group of um, agents who are um, not connected to the investigation uh, are assigned to uh, do the search and to look through information. And they um, only um, give to the agents and prosecutors who are on the investigation information that is untainted. Um, and if there's litigation that needs to be had about the scope of an attorney-client or executive privilege, they have that litigation um, with the relevant parties and with the court. And then depending on what the resolution is, it, the, the information is then passed over to um, the team that's on the case. It is very standard in corporate cases. When I was in the fraud section, we almost uniformly had um, uh, taint teams. In the special counsel investigation, we had a standing group of people uh, that were taint teamed uh, when we were reviewing uh, and doing searches um, to make sure that we were not being tainted by um, arguably privileged information. All right. So, Quinta, you are our uh, resident scholar of unreasonable uh, stuff that happens on the Internet. Um, and the reaction to this search yesterday um, from uh, Republican elected officials, intellectuals, uh, really seemed next level. And I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on it and for what, if anything, you think we should make of it? Well, first off, I, I don't know what to make of that title. <laughs> uh, second off, you're you're absolutely right. Um, the the response to it, I think, has been deeply disturbing. I certainly would have said that if something like this would happen, that the Republicans would go all out in defense of Trump. And uh, I've actually been a little surprised at. at quite how aggressive um, some of the language has, has been, not just from elected Republican officials um, and from other sort of Republican Party grandees, 
but also just from you know folks posting on the internet there have been some reporters pointing out really violent language on uh pro-trump subreddits and and other websites which i, I think is just you know a reminder that however ugly this looks now if the investigation if it does turn out to be you know an investigation into the former president and potentially a prosecution it, it will get uglier yet um i think alan might want to uh, jump in alan please go ahead yeah j- j- i am also with quinta surprised at some of the fierceness of this reaction i don't know how seriously though i would take it and the reason i say that is because it's um i think driven as much by what Republican lawmakers think their base wants to hear as by their own views. And the reason I say that is because you're getting very similar rhetoric coming out of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And there is no question that uh, you know what, what, what Governor DeSantis prays for every night before he goes to bed uh, is that Trump will not run in 2024 because DeSantis obviously wants to be the next president of the United States. Um, so I think it's I think there's no question that people like DeSantis are delighted at, at, at Trump's increasing legal uh, problems, um, and yet even DeSantis feels that um, <clears throat> he needs to say nasty things about DOJ, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, now, all of this, while politically understandable, is nevertheless quite depressing, because if there was a moment for the GOP to get some backbone or just in their own political self-interest to try to toss Trump overboard, it would be when the, you know, uh, the, 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 the law appears to be closing in on him. Um, but such as the sad you know, it is a sad comment on American politics that they nevertheless feel the need to feed the beast. Yeah, if I can, if I can add one more thing, I do think that this is, it says a lot about what the Republican Party right now means when it talks about law and order. There's a quote from the Peruvian general Oscar Benavides that you hear a lot now, which is for my friends, everything for my enemies, the law. Um, and I think you, you see that here, right? That when the law is used against uh, Trump, who is sort of above the law, that that is something that simply cannot be born. And so I think it is dangerous, not only in terms of the potential long-term consequences of whipping people up toward potential violence, but dangerous also in the sort of the political theory that it's putting forward of what law means. All right. Uh, Auntie Ruakonen, you get the first question today. Thank you, Ben. And uh, what an excellent panel. Uh, So this will be both highly technical, unfair, and ambiguous by design. With, with a setup like that. <laughs> so uh, years from now, do you think we will look upon this as a step on a winding path, uh, breadcrumb uh, signpost towards and uh, end result where we will find Donald J. Trump screwed? So I, I will give it a shot because I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of the prudential case for these prosecutions. Um, I think the answer is we don't know. Um, I think the, and I think we have to have some real epistemic humility about this. We are dealing with truly unprecedented issues. I mean, not in a metaphorical sense, literally nothing like this has happened in the history of the United States. Um, And uh, although I don't think that it is an excuse to say, I don't care about the consequences. I just want to do what's right. I think the consequences always matter. Sometimes the, the, the fog of uncertainty is just too deep. Um, and you can't game out the second and third and fourth order consequences of all of this. Um, you know, 
I'd be delighted if this was, as you say, auntie, the breadcrumbs on the trail of Trump being screwed politically um, or legally. Um, but I just don't know. Um, maybe this will turn him into a martyr. Who knows? Um, but I think, the, you know, my whole little rant now, I say, because I think at the end of the day, if you're one of the decision makers, not a you know commentator like us, but a decision maker, for example, like Merrick Garland, at some point, you have to just say, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know what my principles are. And one of my principles is that no one is above the law. And where there is flagrant criminality, I mean, I'm the attorney general. I have to do something about it. Um, so that's kind of a non-answer to your answer, but I, I think that's ultimately what decision makers have to do in a situation like this. So our next questions come from uh, people tweeting at us. Uh, Claudia uh, will read them. Thank you, Ben. We've got a lot of questions from Twitter. Thanks, everybody. So Jeremy asked, what do you think they are planning for EG Trump's impending legal and political actions? And what do you think they are doing slash have done to prepare it? And the follow-up to that, this is a two-parter. Shannon wants to know, what precautions do you think they may have taken in case of political violence? So the they in those questions is the the government? Yeah, it would seem to be the FBI and the DOJ. Uh, so, I, I mean, I don't know that there are planned legal actions at this stage. Uh, and... And I, I don't think realistically there's going to be planning for uh, cases that don't exist before they exist. Although, Andrew, if you think otherwise, please speak up. I, I agree with you. As to uh, planning for political violence, uh, uh, Quinta has given a lot of thought to that, and I would uh, defer to her. Gosh, I mean, I, I don't know if I have in this particular sense. Certainly, it seems like the Justice Department uh, was caught a little bit with its pants down around January 6th and has done a lot of work since then uh, to try to, uh, you know, take this seriously, um, including starting a particular unit, looking at domestic terrorism. Um, so it's sort of difficult to say what might be happening. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this was on their minds. And just as a, a practical matter, I suspect that DOJ and FBI are beefing up the security details for Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and other relevant uh, people, or at least I hope they're thinking about that, because I do think that the threat of political violence is very, very real. We are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Andrew Weissman, Alan Rosenstein, thank you all for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the one, the only Kara Schellen of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast and become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do that at patreon.com slash lawfare, and you can do the promotion from wherever you are, just tweet about us, you know, share us on Facebook, that kind of thing. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. 
Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.